Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes a subtle sign can have a lot of meaning, more than you might imagine. For Andre Perry, that sign was Ritz Crackers. When he was a kid, he would run from his neighborhood, Wilkinsburg, into the city of Pittsburgh, and he could smell those rich, round crackers being baked up. So I would run down the street, and you would have to weave through the foot traffic in Wilkinsburg, and it got a little sparse, and then you would go into this town called East Liberty, where the Google headquarters sits. That was back in the 1980s when Perry did cross-country in high school and ran from the largely black area where he lived into the East Liberty neighborhood of Pittsburgh. Just a few years later, East Liberty would face lots of job cuts and some pretty rough times. Now you run that same route. I, I, I run that same route. And Wilkinsburg is desolate. And there's growth and expansion in East Liberty on the on the essentially where Google headquarters is located. And it looks it couldn't look any different. It looks like a tech company on, on that side of town. Perry is now a scholar at the Brookings Institution, where he serves as a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program. And one of the questions he asks is, how did this happen, not just in Pittsburgh, but in lots and lots of places? How did a new set of cutting-edge jobs revitalize some parts of cities, but not others? And these are jobs that, not incidentally, hand out lots of six-figure paychecks. You might hope for an easy policy answer, like, in minority areas, we underinvested in schools, or we forgot to institute classes in computer coding. And if we address those things, we'd close the gap. And of course, plenty of schools are underinvested in. But Perry has combed through the data, and he says the issue is something that's a little bit harder to face. When whites look at black communities, they see twice as much crime that's actually there. They see poorer schools than they actually are. Many of our assets in black communities are strong assets. They're just devalued. So we've got to push back against this notion that um, there's something wrong with black people. There's something wrong with black communities. And that's why they're not being absorbed into the workforce. And that's why I say there's nothing wrong with black people that ending racism can't solve. I think there's a lot that we should be afraid of. If we continue on this trajectory, we're going to have more pain than we have right now. And I think we've seen in history that business acts um, out of fear and pain or out of opportunity for profit. That's Tawana Black, founder and CEO of the Center for Economic Inclusion in St. Paul, Minnesota. She argues that the huge salary gaps and enormous wealth differences between minority communities and white communities they're going to lead to serious financial fallout for the country as a whole. Because communities of color are really the only base that's growing from a population perspective, and that's a fear point that really, unfortunately, public will, public good, behavior has not led us to believe that without pushing that fact, that reality would lead us to see that we won't take action without us making that painfully clear that it's in our best interest to do so. But if you want to get a sense of the problem we're facing, consider this. The median white household has north of $110,000 in wealth. The median black or Latino household has less than $5,000 in wealth. $110,000 versus $5,000. That's more than 20 times as much wealth for a typical middle-income white family. And wealth for black and Latino households is actually lower than it was in 2000. Which brings us back to the question of how, in a country where just about every mayor has tried to bring his or her city into the innovation economy, 
how we could have failed to make more progress, including all communities in that economy, or in any economy, really. In the Minneapolis-St. Paul area, where Tawana Black lives, the average yearly salary of an African-American worker is about $35,000. It's close to double that for the average white worker. Our study showed that we saw this not just when we compared apples to apples, um, bachelors to bachelors, but literally when we compared bachelors to high school diploma. Whites having a high school diploma, African-Americans having credentials that exceeded that, we saw the wage equities persist, uh, which tells us that's absolutely about bias. So African-Americans who are raised uh, really out of the womb to be taught, okay, you've got to have higher experience, um, more credentials, you've got to work harder, you've got to study harder, and then not seeing that pay off into the workplace, I think we also have to consider what that does in communities. So if we think the solution can be easily legislated, it can't. Which doesn't mean there isn't a solution. Scholars who study bias will tell you that everyone has biases towards some groups and against others. And knowing that, that's the beginning of the economic solution. This is a matter of discrimination that we're willing to live with. Even the stats around full employment mask Um, And that full employment generally is a term that economists use to describe that there's more jobs than people, and they use the unemployment rate by and large to measure that. And we know that uh, the the country, the state of, uh, of full employment, however, there are cities in which black people are in a recession and that um, that rural communities are in a recession. Yet we tout, no more or less than the president touts, the low unemployment rates of African Americans in the country, but we fail to recognize the wage gaps. We fail to recognize that um, the black unemployment rate is, is double that of whites. And then if you're in places like Baltimore, Chicago, the unemployment rate can be as high as 20%. Okay, so I want to ask both of you this. I'm going to start with you, Andre, but I want to hear from you too on this, Tuana. If you if you both feel like at the bottom of this, yeah, you know, maybe there are some, you know, it's not that education shouldn't be funded. It's not that you know it shouldn't be emphasized. It's not that there shouldn't be upskilling. It's not that any of those things aren't aren't issues and shouldn't be paid attention to. But if bias is at the heart of this, how do you solve that? Because I mean, unless you, you know, displace all the CEOs or hiring managers or people in positions of responsibility, which we know isn't about to happen. Andre, let me just start with you. How do Okay, All right. If that's the problem, how do you deal with it? You know, one, I'm a big proponent of mobilizing and organizing communities uh, to push back on the perception. We won't change the market unless workers and the unemployed push back in every way they can. I, I'm encouraged by the teacher strikes going on across the country demanding their fair share. I'm encouraged when I see folks taking sometimes to the streets, youth taking to the streets to demand laws that reflect th- their priorities. So at the, at the core, I, I think it will come from people demanding their fair share. And then um, I also believe it will take courageous policymaking, making sure that we empower communities that have been disenfranchised by by policy. We have to remember that whites didn't gain wealth just because of their work ethic and their ingenuity. No, government policy empowered them. So we've got to find ways to 
get resources to black and brown communities. And we can do that through, for lack of a better term, free college, through health care. We can do that through a federal work guarantee. There has to be acknowledgement that wealth matters. And finally, we have to remove barriers that are getting in the way of wealth formation and economic growth. There are things in policies that are just simply getting in the way from African Americans getting absorbed in the economy. Tawana, does an example occur to you where you tried or maybe you've just seen um, an effort in the Minneapolis-St. Paul area to tackle bias? And then, like, how did it go? Did it work? Did it not work? You know, I do. Um, I could lift up a couple of efforts that I think are starting to move um, and have been moving the needle and are going even further. I think one that I would elevate is a construction firm. Many of our region would know, uh, Mortensen Construction, who um, is not only based here in the Twin Cities, but doing work across the country, who has worked to be able to take hiring goals and contracting goals that most construction firms would have on their public deals that cities and states hold firms to to say, what's your hiring look like um, on your jobs that include public dollars for including people of color and women firms in your deals, but then brought those goals to bear when it comes to private privately owned and privately invested in projects. And so to see a firm who looked inside and said, wait a minute, we've got to put our money where our mouth is. If we're committed to this, let's do it um, wholesale. And we've got now projects in our community that many um, people are proud to go to that were able to enjoy the benefits economically of having uh, women-owned businesses, businesses owned by people of color, and see talent that brings those projects to bear because we had a firm building those projects who was committed to living those values, whether city dollars were at play or not, and a CEO, a chairman, who is committed to living those values, looking inside and doing the deep work of saying, how do I start to understand my own bias? How do I take that on? How do I help the leaders inside my company do the same thing, um, not only from a hiring perspective, but from the way that I live every day? And tell me, give me a sense of what it does take. Let's let's pretend everybody who's listening as a CEO. And they're all thinking like, well, that seems like a very, you know, good goal. I'd like to have that goal. What does it really take? I mean, I, I assume just saying a sentence is not really enough. How do you have to, like, change the internal workings of your company or change how you think? I mean, what does it really involve? Yeah, you know, I think a, a starting point is first doing the assessment to say, where is our organization today? I um, was a corporate diversity officer for some time and did consulting with firms for quite some time. And every firm that I walked into, I would start with a deep assessment with the entire senior team that involved interviews with each individual vice president and president, as well as surveys. And to a point, each and every firm, one-on-one, each person starts when I ask the question, is your firm inclusive, by saying, yes, absolutely. And then there's this deep pause and hands go to faces and people are like, um, well, it feels like it is to me. And then I'm not sure about so-and-so, which is the other, whatever other is for your firm. And so I think the first thing it takes is doing the deep assessment inside your organization to understand, is my organization truly inclusive? And how do I know that? How can I measure it? And having folks inside your organization who can help you understand what that means, how do you know that? Because you know whether or not you're successful in meeting your business objectives. You know that because you've established measurable goals, you've put the infrastructure in place to measure it, and you've put the infrastructure in place to reward it when your folks do well and to fix it when your folks don't do well. 
Inclusion, equity is the same thing. It's no different and it has to be embedded into your business infrastructure. It can't be extra. It can't be on the side. It has to be woven in and it has to be measured. It's also about investment, where your dollars going and not only your charitable dollars, but you spend dollars with businesses every day in your supply chain. And those may be going to people of color. Large companies often have supplier diversity programs. But how do you know if those supplier diversity programs are actually resulting in building wealth in communities of color? And have you built the infrastructure to be able to measure that or not? Hmm. Andre, can you talk about, you know, have you seen instances of um, a dealing with this bias that we talked a lot about? Have you seen instances in which, like, either individual companies or a city or town, like, dealt with it, and, like, you can point to it and say, yeah, that worked pretty well. Well, we, we can definitely use history as a guide. I, I think the number one example I, I bring up constantly is the building of the Atlanta airport and the manner in which it happened. Black architects were highly involved. I think there was a a, um, a a white firm that was the lead architect, but black firms were involved. Black contracts were issued all throughout the process. It was a very inclusive one that was orchestrated by black leadership at the mayoral level. And the black middle class was bolstered by that large infrastructure project. So you we, we must... Whenever there's a a large infrastructure project at play, you have to be extremely deliberate about making sure that wealth is created in black and brown communities. Um, And, you know, this historically, we've always had examples of black communities that used to thrive that was only thwarted by um, white power structures. I mean, the, the classic example is Black Wall Street. The, you know, the story of Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Greenwood District, in which a, a black community in the early 20th century built itself up in spite of segregation. They built black businesses, that they had a living wage for, for most of the people um, living in the area. And then there was a bogus claim in the white community that led to the burning and scorching of that entire black neighborhood. And you can say that in, in many different examples. It happened in Birmingham. It happened in other parts of the United States. Black communities grow and thrive only to be thwarted by white power structures. And so we, we, we got to show, acknowledge again that there are positive examples throughout history and throughout time. But again, there was an explicit bias against black people that led to the throttling of the growth for the, the, the community. And that happened at a micro level as well as a, a macro level. Hmm. Well, then I wonder how you situate where we are now, because one of the statistics that we have seen is that increasingly over the last couple of decades, uh, white people say increasingly they feel discriminated against. Um, Right. We see this kind of shift and probably not in the direction of what you're talking about. I wonder, does that discourage you? Do you think, no, but there's a way there's a way through it? Just give me your sense. Yeah, my sense is that there are people suffering because of our economic growth models. I I don't even like calling growth without prosperity growth. 
And we throw around this term economic growth when, in fact, many people are suffering under the, the growth of a few white people in a city or in a region. And so we've got to, to really stop this idea of, of labeling something or a, a hot economy or we're, we're seeing growth when, in fact, black, white, brown folk are suffering. You know, you look at the unemployment rates of, of, of Latinos, uh, Hispanics, it's, they're at um, all-time lows. But when you look at wages, they're extremely low. So we know that there's a great deal of ex- exploitation going on with that community. And so this, this very notion of growth is masking a lot of the inequities that are that's hurting all communities and how that plays out. You have white communities that are angry, particularly those in rural America. You have black communities that are saying, where's full employment? And then you, you saw, see a lot of finger pointing between those places and, and no one's looking out for the collective whole. You know, I'm hopeful that people will figure it out, that poor folk blue-collar folk will see, oh, we're, we are all in the same predicament. We're all in the same boat. And they will start to ask for policies that will lift all boats. And, and again, that, and that will mean um, specifically to deal with a social safety net around health care, around higher education, around employment that we haven't seen since Franklin um, and Delano Roosevelt and, and other policies that really went after poverty. Tawana, as you travel, you're in Minneapolis, St. Paul, but as you travel all over the country, do you feel like things are changing in cities for the better? Are they changing for the worse? I mean, just to kind of bring this all back to the beginning, we were talking about Pittsburgh and about the Minneapolis area and the notion that you know, you can have a lot of tech and excitement and growth, uh, that word that Andre just talked about, um, but it can leave behind huge groups of people and just kind of keep zooming ahead and not pay much attention to that fact. You know, I'm encouraged. I wouldn't say I'm convinced. There still is not enough sense of urgency. The quote, the frame of the fierce urgency of now does not feel fierce enough to me, um, given what I see right in front of me every day, given the pain and the weight of this work, given the pain and the weight of the reality of far too many Americans that I see and feel each and every day in my work. I wake up and go to bed every day wondering, um, don't more people see what I see? And so I'd like to see more urgency. I'd like to see more action that would encourage me to see and share a different viewpoint for you. Mm -hmm. That said, um, I think more and more people are starting to connect the dots and it's up to um, more folks who sit in seats like myself, who are change makers, who lead organizations like ours, who are economic developers, who are policy makers, who are chamber leaders, um, who are researchers to begin to connect the dots and make them more plain for business leaders, for um, policy makers and elected officials who can really make decisions that begin to accelerate our economy and in particular, who begin to make it accelerate with and for communities of color. Tawana Black is the founder and CEO of the Center for Economic Inclusion in St. Paul, Minnesota. Andre Perry is a fellow in the Metropolitan Policy Program at the Brookings Institution. Thanks so much to both of you for this great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. We've got additional info about the racial and economic disparities that Andre Perry and Tawana Black talked about 
At our website, you'll find an interactive map that explores how geography impacts prosperity. That's at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, associate producer Sarah Leeson, and engineers Doug Sugertz and Andrew Masua. We also had production help from Nadia Lewis and Emily Griffinius. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.